law, policy, and markets. It was just things that you would never think about in a normal trial that we spent a lot of time kind of learning technology and thinking about different ways to present things in light of the fact that it was virtual without a lot of precedent to guide us. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by three partners from Millbank's litigation and arbitration practice group, Tom Arena, Sean Murphy, and Rob Hora, all based in New York. Let's get to it. Pyxis, spelled P-Y-X-I-S, is a small round box in which ancient Greeks and Romans stored medicines. The box was ornate on the outside, with a mix of potions hidden under the lid. That made Pyxis an all-too-clever name for a complex security put together back in 2006 by Calion, the investment banking arm of Credit Agricole. Pyxis was a $1.5 billion hybrid collateralized debt obligation, or CDO, focusing on mid-prime and sub-prime RMBS, that is, residential mortgage-backed securities. In the subprime mortgage crisis and recession in 2008, the sophisticated investors in CDOs like Pyxis found the insides of their investments rather less attractive than their fancy wrapping. The mortgages and synthetic assets inside the Pyxis CDO were selected by the collateral manager, Putnam Advisory Company. Fidget, the financial guarantee insurance company had guaranteed the highest-rated $900 million super-senior tranche of assets in Pixis. When the residential mortgage bubble burst, Pixis, like most other RMBS CDOs, collapsed. Investors or guarantors like Fidget faced huge losses. Fidget sued Putnam, arguing that the collateral manager was negligent, committed fraud, and made misrepresentations about the selection of the target portfolio of assets and the quality of the mortgages and RMBS securities Putnam put into the Pixis CDO box. By the time the Pixis case finally came to trial, in summer 2020, another crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, forced the parties and their legal teams to resolve the case entirely online before a federal judge in a virtual courtroom, presenting evidence cross-examining witnesses, and making motions all had to be done remotely. Let's talk with Putnam's lead lawyers in the case, Tom Arena, Sean Murphy, and Rob Hora, to learn how they managed the virtual trial and how they won this complicated case on all counts. Tom, Sean, Rob, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. Hey, Alan, good seeing you. Good being here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I find this case really interesting, and not just due to my odd fascination with niche financial markets and risk analysis. You worked on this case for eight years. I'm struck you had to conduct the trial virtually uh, in the midst of a pandemic and a recession in order to resolve issues that dated back to the last recession and the collapse in residential real estate and obscure credit products and derivatives that supported that bubble over a decade ago. Uh, you kind of had a little bit of a flashback. So I want to first look at your take on the on the trial itself, because one of the things that made this unusual was to do a, a full virtual bench trial in the Southern District of New York, entirely online, with none of you setting foot in the courthouse. And, and that must have been an interesting experience. Tom, to me to start with you, just tell us a bit about what the case was about, who the parties were. Sure. The plaintiff was the Financial Guarantee Insurance Company. That's a monoline insurer. Financial Guarantee Insurance Company went by the acronym FIGIC. 
they sued our client, Putnam Advisory Company. Putnam was the collateral manager for a CDO that was issued in October of 2006 called Pixis 2006-1, or we just refer to it as Pixis. So Putnam was the collateral manager and Callion, the investment banking arm of Credit Agricole, was the structuring bank for the CDO. The CDO closes in 2006. The financial crisis hits in 2007, 2008. Pixis is backed mostly by subprime RMBS. It begins to fail. There's nothing unusual about the fact that Pixis, the Pixis CDO began to fail in 2007, 2008. Almost all CDOs that were backed by subprime RMBS began to fail around that time. So the deal closes in 2006. Pixis closes in 2008. Fidget, as this monoline insurer, insured $900 million worth of the notes issued by Pixis. It becomes concerned that its insurance is going to be triggered and it's going to have to cover hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. So just by way of background, Fidget settles with Callion for $100 million. And in 2012, six years later, just two days before the expiration of the six-year statute of limitations, Fidget sues Putnam, essentially for recovery of its settlement sum of $100 million that it paid to Callion, claiming that Putnam engaged in fraudulent conduct and breached its fiduciary duties and engaged in negligence in connection with Putnam's management of the CDO. And the claim, there were really two claims or two theories, but one was Putnam picked bad collateral. Um, it just didn't do a good job in terms of selecting the collateral. Our response was, it didn't matter what collateral Putnam selected for this deal, Texas was gonna fail in the aftermath of the financial crisis, just like all other similarly situated CDOs. And the second claim, and this is actually what the case got tried on, the second claim was that Putnam facilitated Callion sending Fidget um, a phony target portfolio that misrepresented the types of RMBS that would be in Pixis. So that was the claim. It was the basis of both the fraud claim that was tried and the two negligence-based claims that were tried. Thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate that. So, Sean, when you look at how a case like this would get sorted out. I'm sure that there's a question of what the witnesses recall from the time of the transaction, which is now perhaps you know hard for them to remember. It's been a long time. And also questions from experts in the industry who know how these types of deals are done, who understand securitizations, and probably have certain views about what the duties would have been and whether they were breached in, in putting the whole transaction together. So in in preparing witnesses for a case like this, how hard is it to get them to be accurate when looking back on either side, either Putnam or Fidget? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Alan, because that was really the the linchpin of of some really important findings of the judge. So the events, as, as Tom just articulated, the events in question happened in 2006. When you're asking a witness in, in 2020 about, for example, specific meetings they had or specific phone calls, you know, obviously our witnesses didn't recall very much at all. 
you know, it was it was it was really about saying what I would have said. I don't recall what I said, but this is what I would have said or how I would have responded to something. And so we prepped our witnesses to be, you know, credibility was the most important thing. Um, what you recall is what you recall. And we thought we were right on the facts. I think that was the divide between how we approached the case and how Fidget approached the case, because their witness, including their main witness, who Tom cross-examined and, and was able to kind of destroy her credibility as the, as the judge found in the opinion by her having an, a really great recollection of phone calls and meetings and where people sat from you know over a decade ago and I think the judge just found it incredible so it was you know it was an important way of thinking about how to prep witnesses when honestly nobody probably remembered the details of what this case was going to turn on. Thank you Sean appreciate the answer. Rob, when you look at the role of experts and expert witnesses in a trial like this, what kind of expert witness testimony is allowed in and what kind of expert testimony is either unqualified or otherwise not sufficient for the court to make its decision? Yeah, that's a good question. We had, as well as Vijik had an expert, we each had an expert testify on industry custom and practice. There was a significant question here in terms of how target portfolios are created, what's that process, what's the interaction between the arranging bank and the uh, investment manager, what's typical in the industry for the interactions and what type of processes would they have, would they have typically undergone. Having said all that, and so that testimony came in and, and it, was, it was somewhat important. Having said all that, I think this particular case came down to the facts. Was there a misrepresentation that was made by Putnam to Fidjik? And, and it, was, it was really a, a, a question of the historical facts, and I would say less a question of the expert testimony. But that'll vary from case to case. Yeah, if I could just follow up on that. This case had some very interesting Dalbert motions. So a Dalbert motion, of course, is a motion to strike strike expert testimony on the grounds that the expert's not qualified to offer the opinion that the expert is seeking to offer. One issue, and a very interesting issue in this case, turned on loss causation. What, were, what are the damages? And, loss, and causation has two components in the case. One is transaction causation. You have to prove that, but for the misrepresentation, you wouldn't have invested in the deal. You wouldn't have done the transaction. But you don't get to collect damages on that basis. You also have to establish loss causation. Loss causation is the notion in the law that the alleged misrepresentation not just induced you to do the transaction at issue, but actually caused your loss. Putnam's position, and our experts were very much opining on this, was that the Pixis deal regardless of what collateral assets had been selected, was going to underperform and perform poorly in the aftermath of the financial crisis. In other words, there was no makeup of subprime RMBS that could have been selected for Pixis that would have caused the deal to perform well. All subprime RMBS in the financial crisis blew up. And as Fidget knew when it made a decision to ensure this deal, this was a subprime CDO. There was no question about that. They invested, they insured the deal on that basis. So Tom, is it fair to say that for that first prong anyway, no matter what the target portfolio was, no matter what 
residential mortgages or pools were, were created, the investment decision would have been the same and the loss would have been the same because everyone was just swamped by the same uh, collapse in the market. That was our loss causation argument. That was our, and, and, and I think Judge Wyman agreed with us. So Fidget had to get around that. And pre-trial, they had an argument that we were able to take out on a Daubert motion. They had one of their experts opine that had the rating agencies rated the Pixis portfolio and the notes issued by Pixis on the basis of this so-called phony target portfolio that Fidget received from Callion before the deal closed, that the rating agencies would have insisted upon a higher initial AAA attachment point for the Pixis notes. And then Fidget argued that if that had occurred, they would have insisted upon a higher attachment point for their insurance because Fidget purportedly only insured CDO notes at two times the initial AAA attachment point. We thought that was bonkers. There was no basis for it, but for the argument, but moreover, we thought their expert had absolutely no expertise to opine on what the rating agencies would have done had the rating agencies counterfactually had analyzed the Pixis portfolio as though its makeup were the exact same as this target portfolio. And the judge agreed with us. Uh, now, the judge who ruled on the Daubert motion was not Judge Lyman. It was, uh, it was the judge who had the case before it was assigned to Judge Lyman, Judge Torres. But that was a key issue that we were able to tee up and that very much cabined the scope of the expert testimony that Fidget could present at trial. And we think we took a lot of the wind out of their sails once we got that Daubert ruling. And is, when you look at the Daubert and the multi-pronged test, just you know, for as far as what makes an expert qualified or make the expert testimony qualified, is it simply that they were speculating and really had no kind of scientific evidence or basis to make that, that, that determination? I mean, that, that's the gist of it, which is, is you, have no, you, you have no expertise to offer the opinion that you're purporting to offer. And, that's, and that was the basis for the argument. But let's look at the, the, the process of the case, too, because you mentioned that Judge Torres was the one ruling on the pretrial admissibility of the expert testimony, and yet you end up in a virtual trial in a different courtroom with Judge Lyman. How did, how did that progress over the few months before trial, where you ended up with a judge, not a jury, and doing it online? So Judge Torres was, was assigned to the case after we originally had Judge Sweet. Again, the case was pending for a long time, and Judge Sweet passed away. So Judge Torres was assigned to the case and decided summary judgment. And we were not far before trial at, at all, something like, you know, two months away. And we're in the middle of a, of a pandemic, no direction from the court as of yet as to whether there would be a trial in July. We had an early July trial date and what the trial would look like. I mean, we all assumed we wouldn't be parading into the courtroom and, and getting together in New York City um, during a pandemic. So when we wrote to the court, Judge Torres, and, and asked, you know, look, we're going to have a trial. How, how would you like to hold the trial? Let's talk about it and have a conference. Almost immediately after we pressed that issue, the, the case was sort of sua sponte reassigned to Judge Lyman. You know, so we don't know what was going on with the inner workings, but I, I think Judge Torres might have punted and, and 
Judge Lyman, you know, quickly volunteered for the position. In terms of bench versus jury, I mean, that's, that's really a critical issue for us. You know, this could have been a jury trial. Along with a jury trial comes, comes great systemic uncertainty. I think all else equal, you'd prefer to have a, a federal, a very smart, sophisticated federal judge decide your case than the randomness of whatever jury pool you end up with. But it was, it was less obvious here, candidly, to, to you know, go with a jury versus a judge because you know, at the time we were deciding, we had Judge Torres and, and she had issued a summary judgment opinion that, that kind of gave them a path to victory um, or at least a theory as to how they'd get there. And there were some things in there that gave us some pause. But at the end of the day, we were confident in, in the facts and our witnesses. And, you know, ultimately that a federal judge seeing that would, would know that we had the, the better side of the, the law and facts. So we decided to proceed with a bench trial when presented with that option. So, so now you're you're doing your bench trial. July 6th rolls around and everyone has to, of course, before that, get their technology in place in order to have witnesses testify remotely from their residences or wherever they are. Obviously, you had a, a team of people that you had to assemble from Millbank uh, and, and the clients all had to be ready as well. Were there any pros and cons to doing this virtually as opposed to being in the courtroom? There were definitely pros and cons. Personally, I personally thought there were more pros than cons. I was really surprised at how well the technology worked, whether it was for witness examinations or even witness prep. We did it over Zoom, both the court, uh, both the trial and the witness preps. It was a massive logistical operation to get everything set up, but I thought it went pretty smoothly. The, the pros would be your ability to communicate with the rest of the team as the testimony is going on. You could easily pass notes around, walk over to someone and talk to them, not the examiner, but others in the room. You just can't do that when you're in the courtroom. The, the cons, and, and Sean and Tom can chime in here as well, is I, I think as well as it does work, there is a little bit of rapport that you probably lose with the witness in terms of not being with the witness directly, whether it's your witness or a witness that you're examining. Uh, but there wasn't as much loss through the video platform as I thought there'd be. And if a witness is being cross-examined and let's say there's a physical document you want them to take a look at, you know, please look at this memorandum, look at paragraph six. How did you do that? Because the witness, of course, is not, not there with you in the courtroom. You can't just hand it over to the clerk and have, have it read. Yeah, the way the way it worked, and again, Sean and Tom can speak to that as well. But uh, whether it's whether it's a cross examination or your own witness, we had the ability to split the screen on Zoom so that, um, and we had something called a hot seat operator. This is um, someone we had an outside vendor that basically is responsible for pulling up and highlighting these documents. And so it would come up on a split screen. On one side of the Zoom screen, you, screen you would see the judge, the witness, and the examiner, and then on the other side you would see the document. We had a couple of, you know, I think probably first time ever happened type of thing that even the judge wasn't sure how to handle. Like, you know, when you're refreshing a recollection as opposed to showing a, a witness, a document as an exhibit, you're, you would normally just publish that to the witness, hand it up, they would look at it. It either refreshes the recollection or not, but you don't publish it to the court or, you know, if there was a jury. And here we sort of said, well, <laughs> we can't hand it up to the witness, so we got to put it on the screen. And the judge just said, go ahead and do it. So there was some unusual times. But other than that, 
you know, it, it worked remarkably well. I, I just to chime in on what are the cons, I thought the, the most, the biggest difficulty was in the prep. When you're prepping for trial with a witness, you sort of meet with them, you develop a rapport, you're in the same room, you're constantly interacting, showing documents. And the prep, which is very interactive and, and a learning exercise for both sides, I thought that was much more difficult than, than meeting with your witness before trial. But when, you're, when you put them on the stand, I thought it, it flowed more easily if you'd done your homework in the prep. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I would make, um, I'd make one observation and, and one, one additional con. So I agree, with, I agree with all the pros and being able to talk to your team members as the trial's taking place is, is an incredible benefit. It, it is because in fear in court, every team member just has to stand like a wooden or sit like a wooden statue and can't do anything other than listen, listen to the testimony and sit respectfully in a quiet way. We were a blizzard of activity, and that was just, we were able to be very productive between nine and five, with the exception of the examiner. Everyone else is, is working on preparing either motion papers or for the next day's testimony. So that was great. One con is I thought it was more difficult to control an adverse witness than if we were alive. If we're alive and a witness for the other side is testifying at length and you need to cut in, you can do hand signals, gestures, you could pace, you could try to show a document. It's easier to break the flow up if, if, you're, if you wanna to try to control a witness. If you, if you interrupt a witness, uh, an adverse witness to try to control that witness, it's painfully apparent uh, if you're doing it electronically. You, you're, just, you're just being rude and you're butting in. I, I think it was a little more difficult to control an adverse witness in a virtual trial than if we were live. And then the other observation I would make, and it's, it's I, I think all of us thought that Judge Wyman did a great job in terms of how he conducted the trial. He was fearless. He, you know, he confirmed with the parties at the beginning of the day, at the middle of the day, and at the end of the day that the trial was going well, that no one had any technological issues. He was very thoughtful and creative in terms of how he went about it, and he made it work. And, there, and there, that's leaving aside pros and cons. There's just, I just think there's more, in some ways there's less work, but there's certainly more things you have to think about in a virtual trial. We were focused on things like how our, you know, not just did the witness have technology, but how did they look? I mean, we had things where we thought we needed witnesses to have a background because it looked like they were kind of a bobbing head. And, and it was just things that you would never think about in a normal trial that we spent a lot of time kind of learning technology and thinking about different ways to present things in light of the fact that it was virtual without a lot of precedent to guide us, which made it, you know, fun and, and but also challenging. So Sean, on that point, and kind of coming back to this, the things that, that all three of you mentioned about how you present documents to witnesses, having the split screen up in front of them, does that impact how the judge would perhaps be, obviously can't be in their mind, but does it impact kind of the reliance on documentary evidence as opposed to the witness testimony in either one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, again, I can't get in Lyman's head for sure, but if you just imagine visually a screen with, with maybe four little boxes of people on the right, like a Zoom, four little boxes that are very small, like Brady Bunch type of scenario, and then a, a screen, the bulk of which is a document, I felt like when a document was on screen, which was a lot of the time, I think more so because this was a, 
a case that happened you know over a decade ago so the documents were the best record there was a tendency of everybody to sort of read the document and focus on the document as opposed to the little one of the four boxes who was talking and so i think more so than in a trial where there's a witness box and the the judge is you know eight feet away staring at this live person I felt like sometimes you were hoping in a live trial, the judge would look more at the document and and he was focused more on the, the witness. I think the inverse was true in a virtual trial. The document dominated the screen and you tended to kind of draw your attention to it more so than a live trial was my sense. I thought it was very difficult over video to read the judge because in a courtroom, you're you're seeing what's in front of the judge. You're seeing you know, the judge's entire body language. And here you could really only see his face and, and you don't know where he's looking exactly. Is he focusing on the witness? Is he looking at the document? Is he is he just, you know, looking at something else down that some other papers down down uh, down by his keyboard? So I thought that was a challenge. Now it's always hard to read the judge, but I found it to be more challenging here than than otherwise. Yeah, and I roll on video, you're, you may not pick up as well as if you're in the room. Looking at the team, I, I know you mentioned this dynamic where the attorney who's examining the witness will be on camera, right? They're live. They have to do what they would do in a courtroom, but everybody else can be running around being productive or responsive. I, I assume then that the dynamic, because this team includes not just, you know, high-powered partners like you, but there's a lot of associates who are really doing, you know, the heavy lifting on a number of the issues as they come up. Was there more collegiality and camaraderie because they could all be working in real time than there would have been if people were just in a courtroom where they had to be, as you mentioned, uh, Tom, kind of more like stoic soldiers sitting there uh, while the proceedings were going on. I think there's a lot of camaraderie that comes out of both a live trial and a virtual trial, just because it's an all-consuming project where it's all you eat, sleep, or drink for you know two months before the trial and until the end of the trial. So the the team the teamwork. Is, is critical and I, and I think there's a high level of camaraderie in both settings. For me, the difference was this. When we were in our virtual trial room, we had situated ourselves around a rectangular set of fold-out tables. We were all on the outside looking in. We were appropriately socially distanced, but you know, Sean was 15 feet away, Rob was 30 feet away, you know, Sam, Samantha and Allison and Kingdar, they were all in the room too. And if something funny happened, everyone would start cracking up with the exception of the Milbank lawyer who was on the screen trying the case. Or if the other side's witness said something that was incredible, I still have, you know, burned in my memory, everyone starts cracking up. You would never do that in a, in a obviously you can never do that in a live courtroom but it, it did allow for a certain amount of informality and, and fun in connection with the virtual trial. So Sean, I think all of us have had the experience of being on a conference call on a speakerphone and maybe thinking we were on mute, but we weren't. Were there any awkward moments, uh, any, any hot mic problems? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that's a real concern when you go into a virtual trial. So if you can imagine mute a lot of the time. I think the protocol would be the administrator of the trial would mute everyone except for the lawyers that were involved, the judge and the witness. So two lawyers, one for each side, the judge and the witness, and the rest doesn't necessarily have to be if the administrator has not put them on mute. For defending a witness, 
you would put yourself on mute so that you can, as Tom said, maybe, you know, communicate with the team with your hands over your mouth or something. So you generally would put yourself on mute, but the danger is you think you're on mute and, you know, you say stuff out loud. So there are, there were multiple times during trial where, you know, somebody was saying something not on mute and, you know, the judge and the, your adversary would look over and say, are you saying something? So I think it's a significant issue that as virtual trials continue into the future, we're going to get some, some open mic issues that, that cause some real problems. Rob, how about you? In the virtual trial, did you face any technology issues? Well, uh, my my witness and expert witness, uh, you know, I started. It was it was uh, towards the end of the trial. Uh, I guess he was. I guess he was the last witness, actually. Um, and by the way, I had I had jumped into this case. I'd been uh, on the case as a senior associate when it first came in in 2012, and then popped in the month before trial. But anyway, so my witness, I, I, I get up to the uh, examining laptop. We used one laptop for examinations because, primarily one, because it was all set up. And unbeknownst to me, the internet connection was coming through the power cord. I guess these days they, they come through the same cord. And that was jiggling loose as I'm starting my examination. So I, I don't get more than three or four or five words in before I get a you know, what, what, Mr. Hora, we can't hear you. We can't, what, you're freezing up. Speak louder, speak louder, Mr. Hora. And so I am absolutely shouting at the, uh, at the laptop screen and I'm still getting, you know, what, we can't hear you. You have to speak louder. Tom and Sean are cracking up. And this is, this goes back to the sort of interactions you have in the room that you wouldn't have in court. Tom and Sean are absolutely cracking up. The whole room is cracking up. It, of course, was not quite as funny to me. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we took a break and, and one of the associates said, oh, yeah, I, I wanted to tell you, you, you know, that that cord was coming loose. I said, why, why didn't you tell me? Uh, <laughs> You'll have to do your new acoustic tour, uh, Rob Hora Unplugged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that that was fixed. That was fixed. And then. You know, the examination went on. But that, that is an example of a, a technological hiccup that, that happened. There was another one. Sean, you were examining a witness where he was being examined by, by the opposing party, and he just absolutely froze. And I think, Sean, did you say he was, uh, he was wearing shorts? And you could, tell, you could tell at a certain point that he was wearing shorts? Yeah, he, he kept getting up to move to try and find a better Wi-Fi signal. And he was he was wearing shorts and just it was half coming through and half not and the judge was was sort of getting annoyed but for some reason everybody on the team found it hysterical and I was on camera so I was not permitted to laugh but I was trying to hold it in so you get you get incidents like that and it's part of the charm of the process now that you wouldn't get in a, in a real trial because nobody'd be laughing in a, in a real trial and a witness probably wouldn't show up in shorts so it's a brave new world it's a reminder we're all human. Exactly. So let's come back to the case and how it was decided. Judge Lyman wrote a 221-page opinion. The evidence was not close, was one of the takeaways from that. How did the case resolve? The three principal findings of the judge, that our witnesses were credible, theirs weren't. They couldn't establish that the target portfolio that we call the PCS, the Peach Code Spreadsheet, the document that Fidget alleged was false, was attributable to Putnam. 
as a matter of fact or law. And then third, the judge, the judge found that FIDGET could not establish or did not establish either that it had relied on the PCS, the target portfolio, or that the PCS caused FIDGET's losses under the law. So essentially there were three legs holding up their stool and we were able to knock out each of the three legs. Yeah, and, and just the cross-examinations here were, were critical in terms of the credibility findings that, that Tom mentioned. I mean, he, the judge found our witnesses credible, but perhaps more importantly, he found their witnesses incredible based on the cross-examinations. And that, if you're thinking about an appeal, for example, judges have extreme deference on credibility findings, and, and the judge basically found their witnesses could support their, their version of the facts. So it all turned out very well. Good. Thank you very much. So what takeaway, what's the lesson that you would, you, what would you do differently, if anything? Obviously, it got a good result in the case, but for the next trial of, of this sort, what would you do differently, if anything? Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a tough question. I'm, I'm, not sure, uh, I'm not sure we would do anything differently, necessarily. I, I, I do want to echo the point about credibility, and I feel like that's the lesson that I learned from every trial. It's, it's always the most important, not always, but often the most important factor. And I see so many witnesses get in trouble unnecessarily on their credibility. And, and that's a huge lesson that I took away from this trial. Again, I thought Fidget's main witness was just stretching not to concede any point ever. And, and it really, um, it, it just wasn't believable. So the lesson that I took away from this is it's okay to concede points sometimes. It's, it's better to do that often to preserve your credibility than to try to fight, to unduly fight the point. Just one thing I might say, you know, in the context of a virtual trial, the judge said, you know, the lawyer and their witness cannot be in the same room. It's much like a, a real trial in that when a witness takes the stand, the lawyer doesn't go up to the stand with them. They're separated. I think having done it and and i'm not saying we would have the luxury of doing this because we have we're in a pandemic and you can't always travel but i think even though the witness and the lawyer would have to be in a different room i wouldn't mind if they were still in the same office building so that again if they're not sequestered you could communicate with them maybe for the first time in months and and show them things you know you if you go in all virtual and you're, you're not with your witnesses at all. Again, I just think it makes life more difficult and challenging for you. It's, it's a surmountable challenge, but it's a challenge that you could eliminate if you could maybe get your witness in the same room as you, recognizing there, <laughs> there may be challenges in light of a, a worldwide pandemic. So, Tom, what's the most extraordinary thing that happened? A couple of things. One is, you know, the virtual nature of the trial, which we've talked about. Two, just how unusual this case was, that it was around for eight years. I had one other case in my 31-year career that was as old, or almost as old. This is, I've had no other cases, though, that I think have gone eight years. We got here because we were successful twice in getting the case dismissed in front of Judge Sweet. They took an appeal to the Second Circuit, and they were able to get the Second Circuit to reinstate the case. Then we had relatively protracted pretrial dis, uh, proceedings involving discovery, experts. And when we moved for summary judgment, we were still in front of Judge Sweet, who sadly passed away while the, the motion was pending. Um, and then Judge Torres, unluckily for her, she had to uh, inherit 
a two foot stack of papers and decide the summary judgment motions. That took a fair amount of time. And then the third piece is what an extraordinary job Judge Wyman did. He inherited this case one month before trial. He had to learn eight years worth of material. He did a great job. And after a three and a half week trial, it took him only about three weeks to produce a beautifully written 220 page decision that was as exhaustive uh, a piece of judicial opinion writing as I've ever seen. So we were fortunate in that a judge as talented as Judge Lyman was able to be bold, well, he was bold enough to do a virtual trial. He was totally invested in the case in terms of learning the facts and assessing the documents. And, and then we were quite fortunate as counsel to have such a strong judge write such an incredible decision. I mean, just such a detailed, thoughtful opinion in, in so little time. Tr truly, truly remarkable. Yeah, I, I think we all agree he was, he was the smartest guy in the room. I mean, just a phenomenal judge for a newly appointed to the way he handled himself. You would have thought he, he presided over hundreds of trials. And, you know, what's going to be interesting is just as we get more virtual trials to get other people's observations, obviously, this is kind of uncharted waters. But, I, you know, I have theories about, you know, things that happen that we can't know until we get a, a bigger body of statistical evidence. You know, for example, I thought some witnesses were far more relaxed because they were sitting in their living room and didn't appreciate it was a trial. You know, a witness walks into the courtroom and you're sworn in on a, on a podium and the judge is there with a robe. Here you're in a conference room, the judge is, you know, maybe not even wearing a tie, as was the case some days in our trial. And it just, I don't know, it, it may have relaxed a lot of witnesses that might have been a little bit more, you know, having more anxiety. And But who knows, maybe that was a one-off. But I think as we get more and more time, we're going to see that virtual trials have have bigger impacts on things that that we're not all appreciating because there just hasn't been enough to see how it plays out. So I want to stay with that. That's a really interesting point because I mean, courtrooms are set up and have been for centuries in a certain way that reinforces that authority of the judge, the decision maker, the, the kind of the, the pomp and circumstance of all of it, which is also meant to show everybody that everyone's treated fairly. Right. And, and when everyone's kind of more relaxed, I don't know if that makes the witnesses more credible or maybe more prone to making mistakes, or if it, or maybe they don't take it seriously enough, or if in, to the contrary, maybe it makes them kind of remember more clearly things and be a little more honest about what it is they want to say. Yeah, I mean, I think, or all of the above, right? I mean, I think, you know, if you're relaxed, when you're stressed, you forget things. We've all had witnesses where you're doing a direct, where you've asked them a question, that you've asked them 10 times in prep, and they know the answer to, but they freeze because, you know, now it's, they're on stage and there's a light shining on them and you're in a courtroom and it's very formal. So I absolutely think there was, there was something, a dynamic that was added to witnesses and, and dare I say counsel that made things seem less formal in a sense, you know, no black robe, you're in your, you're a familiar setting with your colleagues right next to you. You know, Tom already made reference to the laughing off camera, like, you know, that doesn't happen in a courtroom. And so I think there's something to that. But again, we kind of need to see it play out a couple more times to say, this is clearly the case. I, I suspect it's the case. I have a theory and Tom and Rob have theories about it, but we just need to see more of these play out and, and we're excited for the next one. How at all did it affect the rapport or the relationship between opposing counsel? Well, there really was none. So in a live trial, 
one of the dynamics is you spend a lot of time with opposing counsel and if the lines of communication have remained open and they did in this case we were cordial with our adversary you would have conversations with them sometimes you would joke around or you know you might you might try to informally reach a stipulation on an issue but you would have conversations none of that took place all communications were by email or formally over the computer where the judge would be present. So there really was no interaction with, with uh, our adversary. And I just want to pick up on, one, on your question, Alan, and, and, and Sean's response about this being a less formal setting. You know, something is lost. I mean, this was a fair trial. Don't get me wrong. It was totally, it was a well-conducted fair trial for both sides. But something is lost with a virtual trial. So you think about the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals has really no public face. There's a 15 minute oral argument, maybe a couple of judges ask questions, then the judges leave and they write a decision four weeks later. No one shows up in the courtroom other than the lawyers. The district court is the face of justice. And in a live trial, the lawyers are there, family members of witnesses or parties are there, we always joke in the Southern District of New York, there are some old timers who just walk the courthouse looking for trials and they spend their day listening to trials. It's what the old, some old timers do. And they watch the judge making a thousand little decisions in the course of a day, putting in it, letting evidence in, keeping evidence out. The judge is the face of justice. And in a virtual trial, not everyone is able to get an, a video hookup. Every, the public could listen audibly, but they couldn't get a uh, video hookup. So something's lost. You know, I, I, I mean, we have to do virtual trials, but I look forward to getting back to the real thing. Yeah, you, you also don't have the hallway outside the courtroom where people might be waiting, uh, witnesses waiting to go in, the parties, you know, during a recess, you can kind of see each other. And there's a certain psychology to some of that, too. Yeah, all, all of the human action, interactions, and, and there are many, right? I mean, I think everyone always makes a point of being nice to the, to the judge's clerk and saying good morning. And I mean, that's like standard practices. Be nice to the clerk. Be nice to the court reporter. You have to be super careful about, you know, interactions even with your own team or how you deal with your hot seat operator, you know, because the judge and her, her clerk or his clerk might be watching you. So you're very cognizant of everything. And without all of those human interactions, all that kind of goes away and you're focused on other things. I mean, for better or for worse, they're just not there. So that, that human interaction and all the things that can be read between the lines from those interactions, often when trial's not even live, those are all gone. So it's just a different scenario. And that kind of sums it up. It is all about human interaction, whether we're structuring the securities or resolving the disputes that may come later. Thank you all very much, and congratulations again on, on the win. Our pleasure. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.